You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Kyle Marcotte to talk about his real estate investing journey, finding good properties to invest in expensive markets, and how to network correctly to ignite your real estate investing. Kyle is a partner at Quantum Capital and an entrepreneur dedicated to helping others achieve time and financial freedom through time-focused real estate investing. Before we dive into this awesome episode with Kyle, I wanted to tell you all about a brand new service we've launched here at TIP that I'm super excited about. It's called Real Estate Deal Analysis 101, and it's a live class designed like a mastermind group that takes place twice per month where I teach you how to analyze real estate deals, specifically rental properties and house hacks for single family and small multifamily properties. For those of you who have been with us here at TIP for a while, you know at heart, we're value investors who love fundamental analysis, discounted cash flow models, and analyzing companies like Warren Buffett. Now, we're bringing that philosophy to real estate. I spent nearly a decade learning everything I could about stock investing. And then about three years ago, I got introduced to real estate investing. And as you've heard throughout this podcast so far, that opened a whole new world for me. Real estate is an entirely different asset class, and it does have its own specific complexities, but at its core, Similar to stock investing, the goal is to buy an undervalued asset at a fair price that provides great returns to us as investors. In this live course, I'm going to use my experience as a stock and real estate investor to teach you exactly how to analyze and identify these types of deals. This live course is a bit different than other courses you may have taken in the past. You're not given a set of videos, then expected to watch them and teach yourself, nor are you going to sit there and be lectured for hours. There's no specific set lesson plan. This live course is going to be interactive and driven by you. I will explain important metrics and formulas that you need to know, but we'll also be spending a lot of time walking through real life case studies, answering your specific questions, and I'll even be analyzing or providing feedback on the deals you're looking at for your portfolio in real time. By enrolling in this course, you'll also get free access to the exclusive TIP Rental Property Calculator, TIP House Hacking Calculator, the private real estate deal analysis mastermind community to connect, learn, and network with like-minded investors. And in the event you can't make it to one of the live classes at the time it's scheduled, you can always check it out afterward as you'll get access to the recordings for all of the live sessions for as long as you're enrolled in the course. Even if you make it to the live session, you can still go back and rewatch the recording if you'd like. If you're interested in learning more or joining the live class, registration is now open at realestatedealanalysis.com. Again, that's realestatedealanalysis.com. Now, without further delay, let's get into today's episode with the very impressive Kyle Marcotte. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Kyle Marcotte. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Before we get into our conversation about some of your specific deals, how to invest in low-cap markets like California, how to raise money, and much more, tell us a bit about your background and how you got into real estate in the first place. So I was actually a student at UC Davis. I was playing Division I soccer and trying to study neurobiology, keyword trying. 
It was a lot of fun, but uh, it really just wasn't for me. And I was looking for something else. Started to kind of move past liking soccer as much as I used to as a kid and ended up reading a book, Rich Dad Poor Dad, in one of the darker moments of college where I was really trying to just figure out what, what I needed to do. I didn't really like the idea of trading 20 from my years from 20 to 60 to eventually retire someday, maybe. And that book just kind of put words to all the emotions that I had in my, in my heart for a while there. And after I read that book, I got into wholesaling as most people do and some residential stuff and quickly realized that I had just given myself another job and that I wasn't going to actually break into passive income to replace my expenses anytime soon in that, in that route that I'd probably still have to get a, a job to supplement that for a while. So I, I started to look into other areas of real estate and I found commercial multifamily. I eventually joined a couple of meetups locally and worked my way to be a speaker. I, I started checking people in, you know, just grinding, and then eventually got my own little segment and then joined a national group called Jake and Gino, the Wheelbarrow Profits Academy. And I met quite a few investors in there and ended up going out to a couple of their live events and meeting partners and was able to do 119 units last year uh, with partners from that group. So super uh, great experience. And now I don't have to do school, which is, which is nice for me. But, but yeah, that's kind of where I am now. Awesome. Let's talk specifically about your first deal. We talked a bit about it before the show. So I have a lot of questions about it that I think the audience can learn from. And so let's dive into that more. Tell us about your first deal. What was it? Where was it? And how many units? It was 107 units in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I did it with a partner that I met in the Wheelbarrow Profits Academy called... His name is Eli. And I met him in Jacksonville at a live event. The deal is basically it was 106 units, but when we closed, we actually found a downed unit fully plumbed and fully able to be lived in. It was just being used for storage. So that was a really quick value add right there, adding almost 12,000 in NOI just right off the bat. Also, they were overpaying their manager quite heavily. I believe he was a, a relative that they were kind of charity, giving him a little bit more pay than, than the market would, would say to. So we ended up just cutting his pay and, and, and adding that unit day one. And it ended up being a, a very good deal. We're hoping to refinance it this year, actually. Just so I have this right, one day you're a Division One student athlete, the next day you're reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then the day after that, you bought a 107-unit apartment building for over $4 million. How were you able to do this? Walk us through how you went from reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, closing on a 107-unit property as your first deal. Yeah. So I mean, it definitely wasn't that quick of a timeline. I wish that it was. That would make me seem a lot smarter than I actually am. But basically, yeah, I was playing Division One soccer and you know, at that level, it's no longer a game. It's definitely a job. You're fighting for scholarship dollars for people. And most of the kids, you know, it's quite expensive to go to UC school. So without the scholarship money, most kids can't actually go. So it's definitely not a fun game anymore. It's definitely a job. It's definitely a little bit cutthroat. And I started to realize that maybe that wasn't for me. And also school wasn't maybe necessary for me either. So after reading this book, I, I did take massive action. I, I joined local meetups. I, I hustled really hard just to just to do as much value as I could. So I was working camera crew and checking people in, writing their names on name tags and giving them to them. And eventually I got my own little five minute segment, which gave me a lot of credibility on stage. Because when you're 21 and you look as young as I do, it's, it's definitely not easy to get people to take you seriously. But if you are on stage and holding a microphone, it kind of immediately makes you more credible somehow. In our brains, we just kind of associate that. With, with some sort of power or status or a credibility. So that was kind of one way that I, that I added value and got closer to being able to potentially raise money for a deal as large as the one that I did. And then also joining the Jake and Gino group and just scrounging together all the money that I had saved up from college jobs and, and uh, getting into that group was huge. And then also the funny story about how I actually even made it to the live event in Jacksonville, I actually had to take a job the only place I was hiring in all of Davis, California was a senior living facility. And so I was a on-call service member, basically, which means 
I worked the 6 a.m. shift to noon. So I had to go and um, basically wake up elderly people from 85 and up. And you know the mornings are rough for them. So that was my job, uh, getting them ready for their day, showering them and things like that. That was the only job that was available for me to pay for this flight so that I could get to this live event. And then at that live event, I ended up meeting the partner that I did the 107 unit on and then also the partner that I did the 12 unit in Atlanta on. So both deals I did last year, I met partners at that meeting. So it's uh, you know, a really blessed way to do it, but it definitely was not super clear cut and easy. And it definitely required some, some finagling and some hard work for sure. Talk to us a bit more about how you were able to raise that money. I know you said you partnered with someone, but what did that actually look like? How did you raise over $600,000 for that deal when you're just 20 years old? What was that conversation like? So that conversation was uh, definitely an uncomfortable one for me, especially doing it for never having done it before. But I actually met the main investor that I raised capital from. I actually met him at the local meetup in Sacramento that I had uh, worked my way up to getting a five-minute section in. So I partnered. I did partner on the deal with a with a other person, but he was basically an asset manager. So he wasn't in charge of raising the capital. That was that fell mainly on my shoulders. And I ended up meeting a guy named Lalo at a local meetup. And I didn't really expect to be able to even raise more than a hundred thousand dollars, but he had faith in me and put up a decent amount of money and actually brought in a friend named David who brought in quite a bit of money as well. So it ended up just being people taking a huge bet on me, and I'm forever grateful to them. And the conversation was really just me being completely transparent and honest, saying. You know, I'm 20, man. I really don't know what I'm doing. I can promise that I'm going to try absolutely as hard as possible and work my face off. And if I have to drive from Sacramento to Louisville to make things right and to recoup some of your money or to, to fix a problem, I'll do it. Like That's how hard I'll work. And they kind of saw that work ethic um, over the months of, of getting to know me more. And I think that if you can be honest and tell people like, hey, man, I don't have all the answers. Because I mean, no one has all the answers. And if you're saying that, then everyone knows you're a liar right there. So you, you kind of messed that up. But I immediately am just like, hey, man, I will work really hard, harder than most people. And I don't know what I'm doing, but I will give it my best. And I think people respect that honesty. And also, everybody kind of likes to see a young guy trying to make life a little bit better for him and his family. So I, they just took a bet on me. And I'm, I'm super grateful and, and blessed. Yeah, I agree. I don't go to a ton of meetups myself currently, but the few that I have gone to, I'm young myself. And I've found that the older real estate investors there, they're happy to strike up conversations. And even though there's more successful real estate investors there, it seems like the older, more successful investors tend to migrate towards the younger investors. They want to teach them, help them, mentor them, and guide them really any way they can. And it's that's been a great thing about the real estate space. And I think it's super awesome that you're able to just be transparent and honest and say, hey, look, I don't know what I'm doing 100%, but I'm willing to learn. I'm going to put everything I have into this and I'll make it work. So I think that was that was really great. So how can someone that's listening to the show today who's in a similar place to where you were, meaning they don't have much money or real estate experience at all, but they've listened to podcasts like this one and read books, how can they get started raising capital? What is the very first step? So for me, I think the very first step is is just to get yourself in in the community, established in the community in some way. So if that's getting into the local meetup and the process that I went through is the one that I actually learned, I believe from Neil Bow is the is the one who came up with this, or I heard it at a seminar. But basically it's the first meetup, just go and introduce yourself to the meetup host. So don't necessarily concern yourself too much with introducing yourself to all the people at the meetup, but make sure that you introduce yourself to the host. Just say, hey, found your meetup. This is how I found it. I really appreciate you putting all this thing together. And then the second time you go, bring someone that you know, bring a friend and introduce him to the meetup host as well and say, hey, I'm also bringing people to the group. I really like the group. I got a lot of value and let me know if there's any way I can help. And then the third time, you know, you've already, now you've added value slightly by bringing people to his meetup. You've complimented his meetup and told him how you actually found it. So now he understands how his marketing is working or not working. 
And then you can also then on that third meetup to kind of give him some sort of a clue as to how you can specifically add value to the meetup. So for me, it was, hey, I noticed that everyone kind of checks in and um, it's hard to remember everyone's names. There's no real... We're using a clipboard right now. Maybe we could use computer. Maybe we could get some name tags, something like that. I could set that up for you, et cetera, et cetera. So then offer to do that. He says, yes. I mean, hopefully he says yes. And most people will to that kind of a thing. But but yeah, then once he says yes, that go and actually add that value and slowly work yourself into being part of the meetup. And then you know, over time, maybe you'll have a little five-minute segment like I did. And that starts to give you some credibility because now you're not just some guy who blends in with the pack. It's very difficult to raise money without someone knowing, liking, and trusting you. So building that kind of trust in the community is huge. Um, and then I'd also say people kind of think that, oh, I have to find a deal first before I raise money. I think this is kind of a big misconception because if you are actually doing a 506B syndication, B as in boy, which means basically you can't raise capital from people who you don't have a pre-existing relationship with. So you can't actually raise that capital. If you already have a deal under contract, you can't go and raise money from people you haven't met yet. You have to have already established some sort of a relationship with them. So you kind of need to always be in the mode of, of telling people what you're doing in real estate and telling them the kind of deals that you want to see. And I've even seen people put together pretty decent mock deals or use someone who they know well and who they have permission to uh, use their offering memorandum or offering pack or pitch deck, whatever you want to call it, and kind of saying, hey, I'm looking for deals very similar to this and kind of give them your criteria. Hey, 50 units and up and, and metros with this many population and this much job growth and et cetera, whatever your criteria is, but just letting them know hey, this is exactly what I do. And if this is coming up soon, would you be interested in it? And just kind of get people warmed up so that you can say you have a pre-existing relationship with them uh, when you do actually end up getting a deal under contract. So, And it's never really too early to build a mailing list. I know a lot of people recommend adding all those investors to a mailing list, start sending out content to them. You don't have to bombard them every day with material, but just keep them warm and just let them know that you're working behind the scenes to find deals and so that they're ready to go when you do find a deal. Well, that's a great point. That's actually what I do now. The less sophisticated version was the one that I just laid out. But yeah, now we have a whole mail, MailChimp drip campaign and we have different levels of, of engagement and things like that. But even if that sounds intimidating and you have no experience with some sort of sales funnel or content marketing in any way, just literally going and talking to humans about what you want to do, I think is, is step one. And then as you said, once you kind of get some sort of a base, it'd be great to put them in a mailing list and start to have some sort of content that you could send to them. That'd be great. So why did you choose to go straight to apartment buildings and such big apartment buildings at that? Why 107 units? Why didn't you just start with a single family home or even a duplex or triplex first? Because if you got to see that from the lens, my lens was basically, I was focused on freedom, right? So I wasn't necessarily focused on anything other than that concept of trying to control my time and be independent for my time. And I started to realize that through economies of scale, if you're over 50, or I mean, some people say 75 over, let's just say 75 units, of multifamily commercial, then you actually have the leftover income or the scale to hire someone full-time. And then now I don't have to be you know, in Louisville, Kentucky, seven days out of the week or five days out of the week running in that 107 unit. If it was a 10-unit building, however, or duplex, you'd bet that I'd be there at least you know, once a month or once a week. And, and that's not really what I wanted. I, if I wanted that, I could have just stayed at UC Davis and, and grudged through medical school and gotten a, a W-2 job and made decent money. But that's, I'm really not in it for the money. Uh, it's never been about that. If it was, then I would have just stayed trying to be a doctor. Doctors are well compensated. It was the time. I really, really wanted my free time back. I wanted time to spend with my family. And I saw that going bigger meant you'd have more free time. As counterintuitive as that is, as you get bigger, you are actually able to hire the parts and the pieces around you to, to not have to be doing so much hands-on work. And, and yeah, I mean, I guess it would just be, I'm super lazy. So I wanted to go big. I, it sounds super counterintuitive, but that's actually the truth. 
How did you know that you were even capable of handling such a big deal? At what point were you like, I can do this? So that's a great question. I mean, I don't think I ever felt like I could do it. Uh, you know, and, and there's still lots of times right now where I question if I can do it. We're working on a, a 24 unit in Austin, Texas right now that I'm still nervous about. And it's, I've, done the ra- I've done a similar raise before and I understand real estate even better now, but it's, I think there's always some fear. I think you just get slightly braver, but I don't think the fear ever goes away. And I think that having some sort of faith in, and, and understanding that if, even if things don't work out, you're going to get a lesson from them and you're going to grow and become stronger. If, if I look back at my life, some of the worst things that have ever happened to me have actually ended up being some of the better things in retrospect. So I think that I don't necessarily fear complete and total failure, even though that was totally an option and totally a possibility on the 107 unit, because I just kind of saw it as there wouldn't be such a thing as complete failure. There would be some sort of massive lesson and that I would become a much better and stronger and more versatile person for having even attempted to raise uh, money. And, and I figured I'll learn from it. So why not just go for it? But yeah, I definitely was still scared and I'm still scared today. So if, if you're if you're not trying because you're scared and you think it's going to go away when you get older or you get more experience, um, you're wrong. It'll, you'll be scared then too. So just, you just kind of got to jump off the cliff. You really do. I think that's so important because a lot of people listening to the show today are new investors. Either they haven't done any deals at all or they've done just like one or two. And so they're nervous, they're scared, they're worried. And that's what's holding them back in terms of actually getting started. So hearing that, you just need to plow through it, if you will, and it never really goes away. And you just have to learn how to succeed with it. I think that's super important for everyone to learn and hear. So let's talk about what you've done since that big deal. What did your first deal after that look like? So the next deal after the 107 was actually a smaller one. It was a 12 unit in Atlanta. I, I got into that deal through a joint venture with a couple other people in the group. So I was really set up very well by a guy named JP Albano, who basically ushered me in and said like, Hey, we, we can easily get you in this 12 unit deal. So I figured, yeah, it'll be another great learning experience. And right now we're actually working on a 24 unit in Austin, Texas. We're actually under contract and just going back and forth with the seller and uh, trying to figure out if we can, we can get to closing. What was your role in that 12 unit property? Mainly the marketing and some investor relations and capital raising again. Typical. It's kind of my uh, niche at the moment where I'm decent at marketing. I've built Quantum Capital's website, which is the firm I'm working with now. We're partnered a three-way partnership. And I also pretty good at the the sales funnel and, and also keeping up with investors and communicating with people and just being um, honest and transparent with, with individuals. That's kind of my strong suit. And we have a partner, Nick, who is the asset manager mainly, and he's more of the numbers and details guy. And I'm learning quite a bit about the numbers and details. I'd like to eventually master that. But yeah, right now my focus is, is usually just investor relations and marketing. And so when you go into a deal, let's take that 12 unit, for example, what is your ownership or what is the ownership structure of that deal look like? So I think the 12 unit is not necessarily the best example because it was a JV with several people. So it was a little bit diluted, but the 107 unit is a great example of, of structure and a syndication. So it was a 70-30 split between general partnership and the limited partnership. So what that basically means is a limited partner is someone who doesn't have any say in the operation of the building, but they are where the equity is coming from. They're putting up the money, so to speak. And the GP is, is mainly running the deal. And sometimes they do also co-invest, but they're, they're the people in charge of the operation and they say when to sell and when to refi and, and kind of things like that. And so this, the split is actually in favor of the limited partners, 70-30. And then there's an 8% preferred rate of return, which means we don't make money as a GP until the LP has made 8% on their money. So then after that, the split jumps to 70-30, but up until 8%, it's a 100% split. So, and then within the GP, if you want to break down the structure anymore. So within that 30%, if you go inside that 30% and you make it 100%, then we have it broken into asset manager, investor relations, KP, 
And, and it does get a little bit stratified and I'll try to explain it without drawing it out. But basically you'll have within that GP, the investor relations is typically somewhere around 20 to 30% of that 30%. And then you have the asset manager who is somewhere around 30 to 50% of that GP. And then you have the remaining being filled in by people who are putting up, as we call it in the industry, risk capital, which means the earnest money deposit and things that inspection costs, things that basically they won't get back if the deal doesn't close. So it's called risk capital because they are actually risking some upfront capital that they may not get back if the deal doesn't go through. Um, whereas the other LPs will be getting their money back if we don't actually go all the way through escrow because we just get our funds back. But they, we won't get the earnest money uh, sometimes if it goes hard and we won't get inspection costs back. So that's, that's a huge... We give them a little bit extra portion because of that risk. And then we also have someone called a KP who will be the net worth guarantor of the loan. Because when you get a commercial loan for, say, $5 million, you actually have to have a net worth of that amount. So you can't just be you know, a 21-year-old guy who has a little net worth and go and get a $5 million loan. You actually have to partner with someone who has some sort of a balance sheet that can justify that size of loan. So you also end up giving someone a little bit extra percentage for, for doing that. Even though it is a non-recourse loan, it's still, they have a need that you, they have a, something that you need and that, and that makes them valuable and you have to compensate them for that. So for someone who's listening to the show right now and may not have all the money to do their own deal, but they have skills like yours or they can just go out and raise money from other people or they have some sort of skill that they can bring to a team and help them in other ways other than just capital, what should they be looking for in terms of a split? So maybe they don't go out and do a 100 plus unit deal on their first one, but maybe they want to be a part of a team that does a 10 unit or a 20 unit, relatively small multifamily. What could they expect in terms of ownership structure? So I think that it does vary deal to deal. Sometimes we'll do 80-20 split and sometimes we'll do 70-30 and sometimes I've seen even 50-50. It really depends on how good the deal is. So if you can give investors a, a good return or a return that's they're interested in, typically in the industry right now, that's somewhere around 15% IRR. That might, that might even be high by today's standard. I'd say anywhere over 12 is, is considered good in today's standards. I, we typically don't do deals that are under 15 but most people, I've seen a lot of deals going trading at 13% IRR and people investing them heavily. But it basically, it's whatever the split can get, whatever split can get you that return for your LPs is, is typically the split on the deal. And then as far as within your own GP structure, if you are doing a syndication and you're just starting out, again, that's going to be a total case by case. It depends on how good you are at negotiation. I would say if you're raising capital, don't walk away with less than 10% of the GP, but also it depends on how much capital you're raising. And then you're probably not going to get more than, I'd say, 30% of the GP. You're probably not going to get much more than that. But you really just got to negotiate with your partners. And also, negotiations are so individual. It really just depends on who needs who and, and how you convey your value, and et cetera. So it, it really does depend. How about outside of a syndication structure? How about through a joint venture, like you said? Because I think that's probably going to be more common for the audience than maybe a syndication, especially for their first couple deals. So how might that structure look like if you're not putting up the capital? What percentage might you be able to expect? Again, so it kind of depends on your role. But if you were, let's say, uh, hypothetically, you were running all of the deal, you were literally just taking this person's money and they were relying on you to do every single aspect of the deal. I could say that you you could get somewhere around 30% of the GP to 50% of the GP. I would say it would be fair if you're actually doing all of the work. Depends again on how generous this partner is. But again, I mean, it really is going to come... You should get your spreadsheet out and see what return you can offer him and how much equity you can get and kind of pull those levers, right? So, you know, okay, if I give myself 70% equity, what's this guy's return going to look like? Is it going to be favorable? Is it even worth his time? And if it is, then maybe you stick with 70%, you get a little bit lucky. If the deal's a little bit thinner and you you end up down your 20%, but now he's still got his 15% IRR return, 
then he might be happy to do that deal. Or you can go off cash on cash return or however, whatever return metric you want, average annual return. But IRR is typically the most accurate just because it factors in most things, including time. I think that as long as you're pulling those levers and kind of seeing, is it going to be worth this guy's time? You can kind of negotiate your equity accordingly. But yeah, you have to just factor that in. Of all the people that reach out to me that listen to the show, the majority of them are in California and they're looking for ways to be able to invest. A lot of them say they have a hard time investing in California. And I've also heard a lot of people that just don't like investing there. So why are you a proponent of investing in California? How are you able to find undervalued cash flowing properties in such expensive markets? So cash flowing aspect of that last statement is maybe not the most true thing in the world, but they are, uh, I, would say, I, would, I could argue for the undervalued portion of the statement. So my partner, Mark Hentiman, has been investing in LA for about 20 years and he has a sizable portfolio there. Him and Nick have a couple of investments there currently that I've been overseeing a little bit and helping out with. But basically the way that rent control is, is that it scares the majority of people out of California and that does actually allow for some value to be extracted from that. I mean, typically when people are pessimistic, there's always an opportunity for you to to win, I guess would be a good way to put it. But a lot of people are, they've owned the building in LA for quite a while, maybe before rent control was even enacted. And they've just kind of seen that law come up and they've just kind of taken it at face value and been like, I don't want to mess with that. I don't understand it. It's a little bit scary. I own this property. It's doing okay. I bought it in the 80s or the 90s. And um, I'm just going to leave rents where they are. I'm not going to mess with the government. I don't want them in my stuff, et cetera. And you can actually come and find a lot of properties like that who say they're renting it at 1200 and the market rents like somewhere around 2200 And um, they just don't want to mess with it, but they don't realize that if you go and actually buy that person out, cash for keys, that you can then raise market, raise rent to the market. And then you know, since it's on a three cap, that, that added value is, is massive. So if you add NOI of 100000 per year in the first year, let's say, and you're on a four cap, that's $2.5 million of added value. So you're kind of then seeing how the cap rate, the low cap rate can actually benefit you in that sense if you're adding a lot of NOI boosts. But you know, getting into a deal on low cap can be a little bit painful at times. But if you see exactly where the landlord is currently um, either neglecting to raise rents or too fearful to raise rent or has a lack of understanding on how to, or maybe there's a management play, it can actually end up being huge for you on the back end on a low cap rate market, especially for example, we do deals really in the center of LA downtown near like the Staples Center, for example, which is areas that are you know highly intrinsically value valuable. So uh, people aren't necessarily going to going to think that that area of the country isn't valuable anytime soon because it's the most populated place in the country. It's demographically uh, and geologically pretty cool. I mean, it's right near the beach. It's in the biggest city. It's right near the Staples Center. It's high foot traffic. So we don't really anticipate the cap rates massively jumping to say like a nine cap and really destroying the deal. We don't predict the cap rates are going to get lower. Our reversion caps are always a little bit higher to be conservative, but but the deal really does work when you're adding quite a bit of NOI and you're on such a low cap rate. It adds a lot of value on the back end. So let's talk about quantum capital. You mentioned that a few minutes ago. How were you able to become the head of investor relations? So I met Nick actually through the Jake and Chino Wheelbarrow Profits Group and developed a relationship with him and actually ended up another kind of a, a story that sounds cool and like it didn't take a lot of work, but it actually did. Um, me and Nick have known each other for a really long time before partnering. And I actually ended up going and we drove all the way to Nashville from Austin, which is like a 15 hour drive there and back and really got to know each other in that car ride. And even after that, we were still just feeling each other out and didn't really know if we wanted to be partners because you know being a partner is really almost being married in, in real estate. The deals do last like five years. So you kind of have to know the person well. Um, and then shortly after that, we ended up driving up to Denver from Austin, which is another about 15-hour drive both ways, and really got to know him and his family. And 
And we just kept networking, kept knowing each other, kept feeling each other out. And slowly over time, you know, I first was tasked with just doing some website work. And you know, it really is, these things are so slow. And they, they, I think it's just being patient is so huge. And, and also not rushing anything because if you have the short-term thinking of like, oh, I really want to get a part of these guys are doing some really cool stuff in LA. I just got to jump in here with them. Oh, I'm going to miss out. And you kind of get that FOMO, as people say, you know, fear of missing out. You can actually really get yourself in a whole partnerships are key. I think that that's a huge pivotal point in people's careers where they make a huge mistake. Um, and I really was fearful of doing that. I, I'd seen a lot of older mentors of mine kind of go through periods where they had made huge mistakes and they'd educated me about that. And I just, I really wanted to feel, feel this out and make sure that Nick was going to be number one, honest and transparent. I think that those are the number one things. They can be skilled and that's great, but it's really about, it comes down to how honest and how fair are they going to be with you as a person? Because they could be really skilled and that could end up making them so skilled that they don't need you. And then that maybe they even find a way to get rid of you and, and maybe take your portion, et cetera, and not to be scarcity mindset. But, but yeah, you definitely have to vet the person and they have to vet you and you just have to be patient and kind of not rush into things. So how important would you say that mentors have been for you on your journey? I'd say that they've been pretty much everything. I don't think I'd be anywhere close to where I am now if I hadn't even joined the Jake and Gino group. Jake and Gino have been massively impactful in my life. And Lalo, the guy who invested in the first deal that I did in 107 units, has been a huge mentor of mine. And, and even Eli, who's only 27, but he's still been a massive mentor of mine. Nick, Mark, all of them. I mean, honestly, I really wouldn't be anywhere close. But I also think there's an art to getting a mentor. I think that it takes a lot of hard work and, and dedication, but also just the simplest tip I can give is literally just asking the person to be your mentor. I think that people miss this step quite a bit. And until you actually just verbalize the fact like, hey, will you actually be my mentor? The person's kind of caught in this limbo where they want to help you. But again, everyone feels uncomfortable giving other people advice. I mean, I even feel uncomfortable giving advice on this podcast where it's like, who am I? Do you even want to hear from me, et cetera. And those thoughts run through everyone's mind, regardless of how successful people are. And until you actually say like, hey, man, I'm open to your advice and I would love for you to give me advice. Then people are like, okay, I got the green light. I'm going to give this kid some advice. But until you actually openly say that and are, are honest and vulnerable enough to say like, hey, man, I don't know what I'm doing and I'd love your advice. That's when the things can start happening and you can actually start having like real mentors. What would you say to someone who's struggling to find a mentor? You just gave some good practical steps on how somebody can find one. But I hear from a lot of people that they're doing something similar, but they're still struggling. Is there anything they can do specifically if they're struggling to find a mentor to kind of help push them over the ledge and find that mentor that they're looking for? I think that there's a lot of things you can do and they all are going to, they're not going to be fun things. I'm not going to, they're not going to be great things, but they're all, it's all about kind of, you know, looking inwardly and seeing how you can improve yourself because I'm not sure how much I can explain the law of attraction in, in a not woo woo way. But if you, you know, if you are, if you are improving yourself, you end up just running into people who are also improved. It's a really weird phenomenon and I can't really explain it another way than that. But if you do sit down and maybe learn more about the industry and maybe uh, do some, maybe even just outside of the industry, improving yourself, maybe that's going to the gym more, maybe that's reading more, maybe that's waking up earlier and doing some morning routines. Miracle Morning really changed my life personally. And just kind of improving yourself quite a bit. And then people, that starts to, people just see a more complete person and they're more drawn to you. And maybe you're more self-aware and you can, and you maybe you just say a slightly different phrasing in your sentence and that gets you the mentor that you wouldn't have gotten if you hadn't done a little bit of inner work. And, and so I'd say if you're not having any success going outside and looking and you really are putting in the work, Going into meet, going to a meetup every single week and posting on social media and really letting everyone know what you're doing and you're still not finding any success. I'd say that maybe it's a little bit time to step back and and maybe reflect inwardly and see how you can improve and maybe that'll start to bring mentors out of the woodworks. You never really know. Let's talk about that social media component. How do you leverage social media to build your brand or just help your real estate business in general? 
So social media for me at first was like this big mountain that I didn't want to climb. And I was really insecure and kind of nervous to get on there. And I actually made a resolution this, this coming year to just do a comment on one LinkedIn post every day. And that was how I was going to get in. Not even post my own stuff because I was too weirded out by, by posting my own opinions onto the ether of the internet. So I just was at first started off doing my own comments on other people's posts and slowly got a little bit more and more confident. I moved it up to one post a week and then uh, two posts a week. And now it's a post every day on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And then also a story every day on Instagram and Facebook. And I try to just kind of convey what I'm, what I'm doing in real estate and maybe some thoughts I'm having. And just really, it's really about volume, honestly. Like if you, anyone here follows Gary Vee, it's, it's, I mean, I know that he's a little bit of a, a, of a polarizing figure, but he's kind of right in the aspect that it is just about content volume and, and people seeing your name and, and recognizing you because really people don't even remember that you've posted until they've seen your name like probably 10 times on their feed over and over again throughout several weeks. And then you start to kind of become more apparent on social media. So I mean, just start small and start wherever you're comfortable. I super wasn't comfortable. And now I post every day and people tell me that I'm annoying. So uh, you can't actually build up to that even if you are introverted, like I, I describe myself as. But you just have to really start at a, a small place and then just really try to pump it as much volume as you can that you're comfortable with. It's funny you say that because I was in the exact same situation. Before I started the podcast, I didn't have any social media. I had one Facebook account that had some close family that I was friends with, but that was it. I never posted on it. I never really did anything with it. But once I got the podcast, I realized I was a big fan of Gary Vee, but I didn't have any reason to build a brand. And then once I started the podcast and I started to gain some traction, I realized that I needed to build you know, a social media presence and a personal brand and a brand for the podcast. And even for my real estate business, once I started my real estate business, I needed to know, I know I needed to show that I knew what I was talking about and that all these different things were going on and that that would help me raise money for my business. And so I was in the exact same situation as you. I felt uncomfortable posting on social media. And then once I got comfortable with that, some of the negative comments started coming in just from the podcast and social and just everything. And that added a whole nother dynamic to it that was just even harder. So social can be one of those things that's tough. And it's it's kind of weird to even talk about how just posting on social media can be tough, but when you're doing it, it you'll know what it means. And but it, it can really be impactful. I've I've gotten multiple guests for the show through social media. They've been great. I've even gotten some mentors through social media and even some just great friends I've met through social media. So I think it really is a powerful platform and, and it can be really impactful for your real estate business. So it's definitely something I would recommend that you look into. So Kyle, what is the number one piece of advice you'd give to someone listening to the show today that wants to get started in real estate, but just doesn't have a lot of their own money to invest? I would say number one, just kind of really get to know the lingo of real estate because there is this barrier of entry that is the lingo of real estate. I think that people have have put that there either on purpose or not on purpose, but it is there and it is kind of a wall that you have to scale at the beginning. Took me about two and a half to three months to learn all of the lingo, what, what a cap rate is, what IRR is, and things like that. Just kind of really sounding savvy, especially if you're a younger like myself. If you don't sound savvy or... I mean, honestly, I'd wager that I had I didn't go to meetups until like six months to eight months in because I wanted to be overly savvy, more savvy than the majority of the people at the meetups that I'd go to to kind of compensate for the fact that I was going to come in there looking young and that people were going to underestimate me. So I kind of wanted to hit them with, with a wow factor of like, oh, this kid really does know what he's talking about. He's done market research. He Really understands the industry as much as as much as he probably could at the time. You know, only six months in, I, I felt like I had done a really good job educating myself. So I'd say just educating yourself to more than you even think that you need to. And before you start going anywhere out to network with other people, really just being savvy and really being confident with the material because no one's really going to invest in you if you don't have a like a confidence about you and the way that you speak. 
Um, and then also, secondly, once you get over that hump, it would just be getting involved in the local community of real estate would be the only way to, to really start and just take it from there. For those interested in learning more about you, connecting with you, maybe checking out your social media to see the different types of content that you're posting, where's the best place for them to go? Um, I'm pretty all over the place on, on, on the internet. My website's kylemarcott.com. And I think that that's probably the best place to find me. You can sign up for my Freedom Club. I have a, a group that uh, we have some meetups that we attend. And then also there's a weekly newsletter, a monthly newsletter as well. And um, that's a great group to get a, to be a part of. And then also I have my Instagram, kylemarcott9. And then I have LinkedIn and Facebook just at kylemarcott. But I post on all of those pretty much every day. And the website's a pretty cool place to get connected with a lot of other younger guys who are just interested in the freedom aspect. And we're not the Ferrari group trying to be, you know, driving Enzos down the road or anything like that. It's just literally about creating a, some sort of an asset that's going to pay for our lifestyle so we can hang out with our family and enjoy life to the fullest and not, not necessarily be trying to flaunt anything, but just having a good time and, and being free. So that's kind of the community I'm trying to construct around me. And it's a good group of guys. So if you want to join that, then, then go to kylemarco.com and, and join the Freedom Club. As always, I'll be sure to put links to the various different topics that we've talked about throughout the show. I'll put books related to those in the show notes so you guys can go check that out and read up on them more if you'd like. I'll also put links to all the different resources that Kyle just mentioned so you can go connect with him there. Kyle, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's been a lot of fun. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.